Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we check on the war in Ukraine with Russia facing increased sanctions, uh, Biden having just banned Russian oil imports. L.A. Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University, will join us to talk about that. Then we're going to look at the leadership of the CPC with Muhammad Ali, Senior Consultant with Crestview Strategies. And we know the price tag for gas is off the charts these days, right? Starting at crude. But how much of the federal carbon tax and the provincial tax is really factored into that? You might be surprised. Stick around. We're going to talk about that, too. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to begin our coverage once again with uh, what's going on in Ukraine, and not just in Ukraine, of course, but the, the global implications of what is happening uh, in Ukraine. Uh, yesterday, of course, uh, President Zelensky uh, addressed the British Parliament uh, by Zoom, of course, uh, and uh, seemed to be... Uh, calling on the uh, the spirit of Winston Churchill, you know, we will fight on the beaches, we will fight everywhere, paraphrasing it, of course, but it was a very powerful speech. And uh, uh, we're told today that uh, the Russians are starting to increase uh, troop movements there. So uh, what are the implications of that? But more importantly, let's talk about how NATO and other countries are, are reacting to this. And uh, we know yesterday U.S. President Joe Biden announced a ban on Russian oil and other energy imports. Uh, that was effective immediately. Uh, some speculation as to just how that effective that might be uh, in the economic war, I guess, about this. And uh, there was a kind of a shot across the bow from uh, some other folks, too, suggesting that uh, in NATO that uh, there are rumors now. And, of course, U.S. intelligence is indicating uh, that there may well be uh, an attempt by the Russians to try to break up the supply chain. Of course, as you know, uh, Canada, U.S. and many other NATO nations are feeding uh, lethal weapons uh, to Ukraine. Uh, usually through Poland, and uh, obviously the Russians are considering breaking up that supply chain. And uh, the uh, NATO folks yesterday said, basically, if you do that, that's an attack against NATO, and uh, we will respond. So it's getting pretty tense. So let's talk about those implications. And uh, to do that, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Yes, good morning. What a day. It's you know it's ramping up. I mean, anybody that thought this was going to be short and sweet, and I'm wondering a lot of people in the Kremlin probably did. Uh, this is going to be long, drawn out, bloody, uh, with some serious implications. You, you know, it's difficult to even know where to start on this. I I think we should start with the humanitarian side. Yeah. The reports out of uh, say Nathan Vanderclip in the, in the Globe that the Russians are actually targeting ambulances and have already targeted hospitals, very reminiscent of their behavior in, in uh, the, the Chechen war and also uh, very importantly in terms of Syria. So the, the humanitarian side of this, over 2 million people on the move, this is 2 million people on the move out of places like, you know, Hamilton and yeah, others. Yeah. It's, 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 it's very heart-wrenching on that. I think one of the things that I've been paying closer attention to because I have a long-standing interest in it is the nuclear implications. The nu- nuclear implications, of course, we're talking about why the U.S. won't do this and why the West won't do that, and that's all because Russia is brandishing its nuclear capacity, and don't you dare do that. But what about those nuclear plants? Uh, Chernobyl was first taken over, but now we know that Europe's largest, as it turns out, a nuclear power plant has been taken over by the Russians in a firefight, and there's, real, and there's several reactors on site there. So the, the possibility that everything we are talking about could be changed in a moment, in an instant, if there's a, a nuclear power plant failure that puts radioactivity into the air, perhaps uh, even globally, uh, that could change the equation. So I'm trying to keep an eye on that, along with all the other things we're talking about. Well, and the other element to this, too, is, you know, to that threat that Putin has laid out there. Basically, you know, if you guys do something we don't like, i.e. no-fly zone, et cetera, et cetera, uh, he'll take that as a personal affront, and they, he's suggesting, as you mentioned, there could be a nuclear response. Uh, yesterday, uh, NATO Chief Stolberg basically, uh, you know, andied up and called his bluff on that and said, if you do anything to us, that is going to be a violation against NATO, and an attack on one is attack on all. So they're, they're really increasing the stakes here. Yes, but... Pay close attention to what was being said. If you attack a NATO country, that's not going to help Ukraine in any way whatsoever. Uh, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. It had uh, applied, but it was going to be many, many years before it would meet uh, NATO's criteria for membership. The reason we are into this 
situation right now, I believe, if we can go back a ways, is we're, we're in a downstream result of a policy choice, choice that was made long ago to not put the equivalent of what Canada is doing in Latvia and NATO is doing across other um, Baltic states on Operation Reassurance. There was never any assurance given to, uh, to Ukraine that troops would be spread across their region long ago, before there was any buildup, on the slight possibility, perhaps, you know, Russia, um, that Russia might attack even if there are tripwire troops, if there are 8,000 uh, American troops and, and perhaps some U.K. troops, perhaps Canadian troops, strung across all of those military installations and sensitive areas across Ukraine, even the faint possibility that Russia would, would actually go after those tripwire troops, despite their being there, years ago, has put us in this downstream result that Russia has been told over and over and over again, no matter what happens, we are not going to run into a conflict with you that might lead to a nuclear confrontation. And uh, Mr. Putin took that, I think, seriously and led to this buildup and this invasion. And I'm just going to rely on the information that I've been able to ascertain over the last couple of days listening to people like yourself and, and some military experts. Uh, despite all the bluster and uh, for, you know that we've heard from, from Putin over the last couple of days, he doesn't want to get into a, a war with uh, with NATO. I mean, you know, the superiority of the, the U.S. arms, etc. I, I don't know where that would go. But I just thought that Stoltenberg actually drew a line in the sand and basically told Putin, you're not making all the rules here, buddy. Uh, because they have U.S. intelligence, apparently, that says that the Russians were considering or planning uh, to attack or, or disrupt this supply chain that's coming in. Now, as your your point's well taken, if they do that in Ukraine, uh, Putin's going to say, well, that's not a NATO country, back off. But you don't know what that, that attack is going to be, and will there be uh, implications, and will there be casualties, etc. We're, we're, you know, to use those terminologies, we're on high alert here, because we just don't know who's going to make the next move and what the implications might be. Well, on the one hand, the U.S. in particular, but the West, Western and democratic states, remember that includes some in, in Asia, have made it very clear that they do not wish to have an escalatory uh, situation with Russia that might lead to a nuclear war. On the other hand, the dogs of war are now loose. Uh, yeah. Things go off in different directions than anticipated. The most logical sequence, and it's logic only, is that Russia has no intention whatsoever of attacking any NATO country now. The, the idea now is to consolidate his position in Ukraine, and he's already done that in Belarus. And uh, so if he can change the geostrategic thinking by having Ukraine being basically a, a frontline state against NATO through successful conquest and incorporation into Russia's sphere of influence, that would change the geopolitics. He can then just sit and wait and pick apart the NATO uh, solidarity that we're seeing now and uh, wait to another day. So the, the logic is that there's no intention to start a wider war by, uh, you know, I'll take Ukraine and then I'm going to go after the others, former Soviet uh, uh, states that are now, now in NATO and the Baltic states starting with those in particular. But, you know, that's just the logic of the situation. Logic doesn't always hold in war. Well, and that's it. I'm, I'm, I, you've seen the stories and the speculative stories. I guess we should categorize them. That maybe Putin's lost it, and you know he's he's not the guy, the the you know keen strategist and you know diabolical guy from a couple of years ago. He's just acting in in kind of a crazy fashion. Uh, you can't rely on that. And besides, even if that were true, it's probably even more dangerous because you know you don't know how he's going to respond to situations like this uh, if he got backed into a corner. But I don't think he's anywhere near a corner right now. Uh, they're not progressing to the state that they thought they were going to do, I think, through Ukraine. I think that's pretty obvious. But you're right. If he's going to play the long game here and figure, you know, I'm stopping at the border here. Um, but the other question, I guess, he has to, to make a determination about right now is even if they conquer Kiev and a number of other cities, can they govern that? Can they hold that ground? I mean, it seems to me as if this is going to turn into a guerrilla war if, in fact, uh, he's going to claim victory and said, you know, we've, we've, we've won Ukraine back. You know, Mike Tyson, the boxer, said everybody has a plan until you're punched in the nose. So the plan A doesn't seem to have worked at all. Uh, plan A was fairly clearly laid out. There was going to be uh, basically a, blitz, a blitzkrieg on, uh, on, on the state of, U of Ukraine. They were going to come in. They were going to take Kiev. They were going to 
uh, perhaps assassinate uh, and certainly get rid of uh, the, Mr. Zelensky, but his entire democratic government put in a puppet government. The puppet government would then declare uh, a halt to the war. That's call the troops off and say, okay, um, this war is over, and everything would be uh, very quickly done. That clearly, Plan A has not worked. Plan B, unfortunately, is to raise the level of brutality in a way with which uh, we are very familiar because of previous activities of the uh, of the use of force by Russia in particularly in the Chechen capital but also in in Syria so we we and also in Georgia for that matter so now uh, what is plan B and is there an off ramp there's a lot of diplomatic activity that has not really gotten a lot of attention uh, the role of China is coming into focus and we should because if there's going to be a, a state that can, in a sense, intervene and say, we now insist on mediation, it would be China. But there's a lot Let me of ask you about that. Our time is on. tight here, and I've got a couple of minutes left, but yeah, I do sure. want to ask you about that, uh, because this is something that, that you've been talking about right from the beginning of this whole uh, fiasco, of course, in Ukraine, is the influence of China uh, and the deal or whatever sort of a, uh, an agreement that she and, and Putin may have made. Uh, you know, because we've heard just about every uh, economic uh, sanction that has been talked about, including this one. Uh, the, the response seems to be China says, don't worry, we've got your back. You, you get kicked out of the uh, the global banking system, don't worry, you can use ours. Like credit cards, you can use ours. But there seem to be some some indications now, Elliot, that they're not really enamored of Putin and they're getting a little tired of this and thinking maybe they got sucked into this thing. Yes, uh, China's role... <laughs> That has to be one to be watched and also is probably evolving. The February 4th agreement, when Mr. Putin did something extraordinary, he actually left his room <laughs> and went to, uh, went to visit another uh, COVID-weary leader, Xi Jinping, uh, at the start of the Olympics. And they've reached this uh, deal with, you know, no borders, unending deal. We will, and then agreed to buy lots and lots of oil and gas uh, from Russia, of course, the advantage of China for the next 30 years. So a, an, a back door off the sanctions against oil and gas. But now they have to be wondering, wait, um, if, the, if the Russian economy can have measures put on it that will collapse it, and those were put in in eight days, what would happen to us if we, <laughs> if we ever made a move? It might take 14 days. But they're also very, very concerned now about global stability. They're prosperity and their ability to rise has to do with a, a peaceable enough globe that they can continue to operate as a uh, an emerging power and increasingly dominant uh, in their own region. So they they now have to play it very cautiously. Where do they want to go next? Uh, there's um, this talk, you know, they've been played. Did Russia play them? No, they're just going to wait now until Russia is basically bled out by this quagmire, and then China will be the ultimate beneficiary. And, and I guess the, when you look at that global structure and how you know, those things have happened, I, I'm sure the speculation, certainly on Putin's part, and maybe even from Xi too, was that uh, this move against Ukraine uh, was going to split NATO up. I mean, they were fractious to begin with. There were some pretty deep divides there. And the opposite's happened. It's really united NATO, and I don't think they saw that coming. No, I think the uh, the creation of what I've been calling the new Europe uh, probably has caught everybody by surprise, and Joe Biden deserves a lot of credit on, on putting that together, keeping in mind that every time he talks about this situation, he explicitly says only NATO countries you know, are going to be involved, that uh, once again signaling to, to uh, Russia, to Putin, that Ukraine is not part of NATO. The, the delicate dance here right now is how to help the people on the ground, how to help the Ukrainian forces without leading to an escalatory situation. And I think there's where China is uh, very concerned. Uh, they don't need a nuclear war either. And uh, in that sense, uh, the U.S. And, and China have a, a and the Western democracies have a confluence of interest. Let's not let this spiral out of control and even lead to a possible nuclear disaster. Exactly. Elliot, as always, great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much. Uh, more to come, to be sure, on this, and uh, we'll talk again soon. But thank you for today. Oh, you're very welcome, and I look forward to any future conversation in this important matter. As do I. Thanks again. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Maybe some clarity now in the race to become the next leader of the federal conservative party, uh, since Aaron O'Toole, of course, uh, was well effectively forced to step down. And uh, we already know about some of the names that are in there. Of course, Pierre Pauliev is uh, the front runner as of this stage because he's the only declared candidate. Sort of. Well, actually, that changed yesterday. Uh, Leslie Lewis, who actually ran for the leadership once before, has announced that she's uh, going to be running. Jean Charest, we're told, is uh, going to be making his official announcement and the launch uh, later on this week out west. Uh, interesting twist there. And there's a lot of speculation about uh, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. And uh, to try to make some sense of all of this, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant at Crestview Strategies, who's keeping an eye on this. Uh, Muhammad, thanks uh, for the time. Great to have you back on the show today. Thanks for having me again. Uh, you need a scorecard. This is like a baseball scorecard here, you know, to find out who's in, who's out, and, and who's up to bat right now. Uh, we, we kind of figured Sheree was going to make it official, and we're told that he will. Uh, Leslie Lewis ran... She was effective, uh, effectively, I guess, a, a non-entity in the last uh, leadership race that was eventually won by Aaron O'Toole, but apparently garnered an awful lot of support from the extreme right wing of the party. And uh, talk to us about that candidacy. And, and she's, you know, since then, of course, been elected, and she's a sitting member now in the in the Commons. Uh, when you look at these things, I guess the one thing we always try to do is, okay, who cancels whom out here? And, you know, you look at her and you look at Pierre Polyev. Uh, are, are they two likely candidates of the same uh, political bent, though, that, that may cancel each other out, or is there some room there? You know, I think, um, you know, to use your baseball analogy, I think this is a, a right now between the two of them is a, is a strong uh, pitching duel right now between the two of them in terms of what they want to accomplish. Um, you know, they're both, they both do, uh, exist in the same spectrum area, largely like, you know, you can, uh, arguments can be made either way, um, on, on specific issues. Um, and so I think her, her approach is, you know, as a social conservative coming in, she's going to have a ton of support from those organizations, those organizational bodies that exist in the party that can mobilize and raise money very quickly. And so she's going to benefit quite a bit from that. And for Pierre Polyeve, he's going to, and most likely as part of his strategy, uh, appease those voters. And so when you come into the, the actual voting uh, day for the Conservative Party, they have a ranked ballot. So one of the things that could be of strategic value for, for really either candidate is being the second option um, to help block out the you know, losing votes, the you know, left of Pierre Polyeve camp. Um, and Leslie Lewis can dominate the sort of like very traditional, old, you know, social conservative, more right wing kind of wing of the party. The uh, Sherry candidacy, which looks like it's going to happen. I mean, there's some speculation about yes or no, I guess about a week or so ago. But just his indications and the stories that we've heard is that, like you say, he's probably going to launch tomorrow night out in Alberta. Uh, He's being branded already by Polyev and, and actually former Prime Minister Stephen Harper is not the guy for the job. Uh, is is there a legitimate support for Charest within this party right now? I mean, he was, of course, as, as you and I talked about the other day, he is a former leader of the Conservative Party back in the day, just after uh, the, the decimating election where John uh, Karchian, of course, defeated the Conservatives. But this is a different party. This is a different concept. This is a different philosophy. Uh, does he fit in? You know, it's interesting. I've, I've had this debate with a few few colleagues, and um, one of the interesting points that was raised to me is uh, within the Conservative Party is unique where the number, you know, one of the top sort of message you need to deliver is how conservative are you? Are you a true blue conservative? And I'm more conservative than the next candidate. Where you don't really see that in, you know, in the other parties with the Liberals, the NDP, or the Bloc, like, you know, who's more liberal? Who's more NDP? Or like, you don't hear that. Or, you know, it's really on, on the basis of policy and such. Um, you know, he does have a place in this party. There are still people who joined the party in the 80s and 90s when Jean Charest was around and, and obviously a very much a high profile individual. He's got a deal in Quebec. Um, you know, it's it's interesting that like, you know, he, he did join the Quebec Liberal Party, but that was because that was the only party on that side of the spectrum there was no real conservative party at the time. So, you know, there is, you know, obviously animosity between him and Stephen Harper. So that's more probably personal than really uh, on sort of partisan level. Uh, but he does have a place in his party. I think he's attracting a certain level of candidates from the Red Tours. You've seen Tasha Kinindran 
um, endorse them. You have, you know, Alain Reyes and Gerald Dettel, current sitting MPs from Quebec and the Conservative Caucus endorsing him. So there is a space that he exists. Now, can he mobilize and capture it big enough? You know, it's it's always difficult to mo to mobilize the, the moderate voters sometimes, the ones who are comfortable, like, you know, saying, you know what, it would prefer Josh Shuri, but I'm not uh, motivated enough to go out because I'm scared of Pierre Poilievre. I'm scared of Leslie Lewis. Whereas the opposite exists for the social conservative wing, which are like, I'm scared of anything progressive. I'm going to make sure I come out and make sure my my person gets uh, gets elected. All right. The other name I want to throw at you uh, is Patrick Brown, and there's been a, a new twist, as you know, Mohammed. Uh, to his potential candidacy, uh, and that, of course, being the, the black cloud hanging over him about the sexual assault allegations that uh, essentially ran him out of the uh, top job, of course, as the Ontario uh, progressive conservative leader uh, just a couple of months before that election, uh, which eventually Doug Ford won. But uh, the story we're hearing today is that they settled out of court. Uh, he was suing CTV for millions of dollars for uh, slander, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, CTV has issued a statement, uh, I don't want to read the whole thing, but paraphrasing basically said, we found out some of the stuff we reported was incorrect and we apologize for that and the impact it might have had on his career. So uh, I don't know if the money has changed hands, whatever the case might be, but uh, Brown and his people say he's vindicated now, that's behind them. Uh, does that clear the path for him to throw his hat in the ring on the federal level? I think it uh, I think it already was kind of clear path from before this. I think for him, maybe it was on a personal level, he, he felt... Uh, this is a, a, a needed hurdle to go over. You know, given, you know, even the statement, though, which is kind of interesting with uh, what was reported, that it didn't seem like the entire story they were kind of retracting. They were retracting no. segment of it in terms of what was reported. So uh, I think there's still a little bit of, uh, of uh, black cloud hanging over over this. But, uh, you know, I've, I've, I believe that he what he has done since that story obviously has recovered politically. Uh, became a mayor of Brampton, uh, popular there, and clearly a, a contender for leadership. His he sort of has his dirty laundry out to, for the public already, right? So he he almost in a way was already vindicated in the sense of, I you know you know my skeleton, so here we go. Like I'm I've, I'm changed person. I'm married. I have two kids, and this like you know he can reposition himself, and he I think he's done that uh, already. Uh, so I think this doesn't really change too much for him. It may have just done it for him personally, uh, but I definitely expect him to probably throw his hat in the ring because he would definitely be a very strong contender given his ability to mobilize uh, members uh, and sign up new members um, in leadership races. Which he did on the provincial level. And we should, by the way, remind our listeners, uh, Patrick Brown is a former member of parliament too and uh, stepped down to run for the Ontario Progressive Conservative leadership and won it. And as you said, uh, surprised an awful lot of people with his uh, ability to organize and uh, bring new people into the fold. And and, and as you say, after he left uh, the, that leadership, uh, actually tried to run for a regional chairman in, in, in the upcoming uh, municipal election. And, and Doug Ford turned around and eliminated that position altogether and said, there is no regional chairman here anymore. Uh, so he's, he pivoted and ran for mayor. And as you say, he's, he's been the mayor of Brampton ever since. It's a, it's a rather interesting political career. Uh, but again, it's he was accused uh, when he was running for the Ontario leadership of being one of those far right wing conservatives, uh, because that was basically the, the theme with an awful lot of the backbenchers uh, when he was sitting in the Harper government. Uh, he came across as much more of a moderate, though, uh, with his proposals to, to take over Ontario here when he became the, uh, the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. Uh, I guess we have to wait and see just how he defines himself in this. Has has he changed? Is he is he trying to capture that that middle? If there is one in the Conservative Party, I think his comfort zone is the middle, more or less. I think he's somewhere between Jean Charest and Pierre Polyver. Uh He, I mean, he's a guy who's, who who adapts very well. I mean, he's uh, known to say what needs to be said to certain audiences. Um, so, I, you know, not to say that other political candidates have not done that in the past. I think he's probably one of the better ones at this. But ultimately, regardless of whether the appeal to the broader population is there or not amongst all these conservative candidates, it really comes down to the party membership, which is a very small segment of, of, of the Canadian electorate. And your ability to bring in new members, uh, your ability to mobilize them, come out and vote, 
and to win the points amongst in all the writing, the way the structure is with the Conservative Party. Like there's there's a whole other system out there that uh, one needs to uh, basically game in a way for to win the leadership of the Conservative Party. Um, and I think he is well poised to uh, have a strong dinner. And I think this is where uh, he and Jean Charest may balance each other in the sense of who becomes first and second choice for their supporters. If they mobilize very well, both of them, they could, in theory, tip the balance for a candidate that falls in their political ideology camp, you know, one that's on more on the red Tory progressive side, as opposed to more of the Pierre Polyver and, and Leslie Lewis side of the party. But you, I know we're just about out of time, but it's interesting how you positioned a, a Patrick Brown candidacy uh, kind of in between uh, Jean Charest and Pierre Polyev. Uh, you know, in other words, if people are unsure, I'm not sure which way I want to go, he may be, well, the second choice for an awful lot of, of supporters of both of those. And who knows how that's going to work out. It's, it's an interesting dynamic. It's going to be fascinating to see just how this uh, rolls out in uh, the next few days. Always a pleasure, Mohammed. Thank you so much for the time today. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. You too. Thanks for having me. Take care. Muhammad Ali, of course, uh, from Crestview Strategies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about gasoline prices uh, right now. Everybody's talking about gasoline prices. And uh, uh, there's a lot of speculation about this. You kind of channel Mark Twain here. I mean, everybody's talking about it. Nobody seems to be able to do much about it or wants to do much about the, the skyrocketing gasoline prices. Uh, the good folks at uh, Maru Public Opinion have actually... Uh, put the finger on the pulse of Canadians to find out just how we're feeling about it. And uh, there's a rather interesting result. And uh, to that end, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program, John Wright, Executive Vice President of uh, Maru Public Opinion. Uh, welcome back, John. Hope you're doing well these days. Very well. Thank you, Bill. And nice to be with you again. I, I'm just reading the overview. I will let the details, mm-hmm. of course, of the report too, but the overview uh, last night, uh, we seem resigned to the fact that prices are not going to go down anytime soon, that, yeah, we understand the global situation, uh, but even if that were to be resolved today, this isn't probably going to change for a little while. There's a certain, uh, I think of, I guess this is just the way things are. It's kind of a Canadian attitude, isn't it? Well, you're right in a, um, in a way, because this poll was actually taken about a week and a half ago. So it's, it's predates where we're seeing the rise in the prices at the pumps right now. And certainly the escalation that there is in the Ukraine. So, a majority believe that it's going to stay this way for a while. It's interesting to see how it splits out uh, again, just before all of this major escalation takes place, where the public splits out as you know a quarter saying that this has to do with uh, shortages around the world and regular demand, a quarter in terms of international events, a quarter in terms of taxes, and a quarter in terms of price hikes um, that are going into the back pockets of the uh, oil companies. So it really is spread out in terms of where we were a week and a half ago sort of putting our finger as to why this is being caused there's no question in my mind that if we go back in the next uh, month which i intend to do that we'll see an escalation in the sense that this is beyond our control it's international events and um it may be that people see this as a as a longer term issue that we're going to have to deal with um you know going forward you know when joe, joe biden made the announcements yesterday about uh, putting mm-hmm. the freeze on uh, on russian oil and gas into the states uh, he made a statement that I think really stuck out there, and he says we're all going to have to suffer to, to 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 do what we need to do in Ukraine. Do you get the sense, John? You, you've been doing this for a long time. Are we ready to do that? Are we ready to pay a price for something that's happening half a world away? Because I'm 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 getting an awful lot of people on social media right now that are saying we don't even belong there. You know why should I pay more at the pump just because you know there's something going on in Ukraine? Uh, that doesn't sound very Canadian to me. We're usually a uh, and uh, welcoming people that say we'll do what we can here uh and i guess there's always going to be that fringe element that are going to be on the hey you know we shouldn't do anything like this but are we still in that mood like yeah this is awful but it's it's worth it for the at least now well, seeing what's going on in the world well let's put this in perspective social media as you and i know is is not anywhere near the real world so we can have 10 percent of the people who are unvaccinated in this country um, and they appear to be a much greater proportion. We can have 13% in the latest poll, which was just this past week, saying that we shouldn't be in the Ukraine. And there you go. It's, you know, it seems much bigger than it really is. 92% of Canadians now stand shoulder to shoulder with, uh, with Ukraine. And um, most of us believe that we should be there. In fact, there's almost a tenth of the population that believes that you know, we should risk it and go all the way in there. So setting that aside, 
um, you know, we're going to have to, it, it is courageous. It's courageous to take the stand, but it's also the people who are going to feel it the most are the hourly workers. Are those people who are, let's say, earning, you know, 20 to 30 bucks an hour, who might be a dental assistant somewhere, who's got to get in a car and drive to some dentist office, oftentimes without benefits, because that's how the industry is, is works, um, who have to, you know, then drive maybe 30 kilometers home to a rental apartment because of their hourly wage. You know, I'm not putting them down. I'm just speaking from family mm-hmm. experience. But but these are the people who are going to hurt the most, who for, you know, 30 bucks taken out of their uh, paycheck, um, after uh, taxes, it's going to cost them a lot. On the other hand, you look at the poll and you ask people, well, who are the most likely to buy the hybrid or the electric vehicles, which was the other part of this. And it's all high end. I mean, it's all $100,000 people earning, uh, you know, we're well-educated in a couple of provinces across the country, not necessarily in Ontario. So there's a real income disparity in terms of you know, we may stand shoulder to shoulder, but some are a little higher on that shoulder than others are. And it's the low income folks and low income nowadays can mean, gosh, you know, um, 60,000 bucks. Uh, but who were saving for that home, who are not going to have even, you know, more money that they can save for it in even that market. So, yeah, courageous. Yes, something we want to do. The question is whether or not we can sustain it and and whether or not uh, politicians here in this country are going to be able to respond to it in an effective way to reduce that burden. And I'm not sure they are. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I mean, you know, as we started hearing some of these stories and, and the impact it's having, uh, it, it kind of brought back memories of the stuff my mom and dad used to talk about, about you know, back in World War II. I mean, where people back here, and there was rationing of, of, of certain kinds of food and, and metals and stuff like that, but that was for the war effort. We're not at that stage, certainly not yet. Uh, but, you know, as, as they related to me, there seemed to be a willingness to say, yeah, it's it sucks, but it's what we need to do. Uh, and I like to think that we're taking the same attitude here, but because this is only, as, as you mentioned to us last week when we talked, uh, we're talking about gasoline prices today, but I mean, it's going to have an impact on our groceries. It's going to have an impact on everything else. Mm-hmm. When the price of gas goes up, everything goes up. Yeah. And it's not just the transportation of which, you know, I was listening to yesterday, there was a, um, a transport company who was saying that their cost for transporting because of uh, the fuel shortages have gone up 87%. So that's got to be passed on to the consumer somehow. Um, and, and we can see that it's going to be reflected not only in, you know, that marketplace, but when we think of petroleum and what it costs, you know, what it creates in the rest of our society, the plastics, you know, everything for cars, you know, all that sort of stuff, it will have a ripple effect. So rationing will be an interesting perspective, but the real squeeze will be on politicians. Politicians who at right now in Ontario take 59 cents of every gallon or every liter that goes into your tank. The the offset to that, of course, is now while the municipalities are not getting anything directly from that, is that we have a federal government that's racked up a trillion dollars worth of of um, debt because of the pandemic and are are obviously going to be welcoming this, and we've got carbon taxes on top of that. And the provincial government heading into an election campaign who has basically said this morning, look, if the if the federal government drops it, then we will too. Well, it's not going to be anytime soon that the federal government does that, but there'll be increasing pressure on governments to do something, whether it be in the form of, of a rebate or, uh, you know, the other way in some kind of rationing, which will in fact even jack up the prices more. So it's a complicated marketplace. But governments are benefiting the most right now out of all of this. And uh, I, I find it, you know, in the short term, at least, that I don't think there's going to be any relief from them whatsoever. They're just going to show better bank accounts, especially Jason Kenney, who, who is going to be finally flushed for the first time in many years. Well, and that's, as you say, one of the unintended consequences of this, you know, and they can wring their hands all they want. Uh, but when the price of gasoline hits two bucks a liter, uh, you know, the federal and provincial taxes and the H- that, that's a percentage of the, the price. So their revenues are going to go up. This is we, we've seen this before, John, how many times where, you know, a couple of months from now, the revenue minister is going to come up and say, we really did a great job of handling our, our finances and we've got much more money than we thought. Well, no, it's because we're at the gas pump. Uh, that's where an awful lot of that revenue comes from. Uh, and so you know, they're, they're the last ones that are going to say, you know what, I'm going to drop the tax. As you say, they're they're swimming in red ink right now. Every government everywhere. 
Uh, this is this is a, an unintended boon for them. Actually, to, it's not going to put them in the black, but it's certainly going to be a, 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 a source of revenue that they didn't anticipate. Well, and <clears throat> the other thing is that doing a podcast on Friday, <clears throat> excuse me, I was asked. You know, clearly the issue going into the provincial election campaign in June is going to be the cost of living. And the answer I had to give to that was, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a factor, but let's put it this way, that two weeks ago, Justin Trudeau's numbers for his handling of the truckers situation were right down in the toilet at about 17% identifying yeah. that he'd handled it well. Well, guess where it is today? 58% swung all the way up because of how he's handling this situation. Number two, I don't know where things are going to be in june that's a long way away and we may have uh, lesser prices we may have a different issue that's on the table um we may have people who are just damn angry at everything and just decide to take it out on whoever's in government so i think we got to keep our powder dry in terms of what's going to drive election campaigns but i do know this that it is in this province in election year I do know that there's a budget coming up that's being delayed, so it feeds right into the election. I do know that that budget is going to be the plank um, platform so that it takes Doug Ford into the final days to try and get another majority government. I am looking at numbers this morning that have him at 37% approval ratings that have yet to be released. I will be releasing shortly if it matches where he is in the vote, which is at 37, which gets you a majority but it's less than it was last time. It's volatile out there and we'll have to see where it ends up at the end of the day. So I, I don't count anything at the moment. I think it's a very risky environment for not just citizen consumers, but also for the politicians. Well, exactly. And and just swing back to you, to the poll that you did here that talks about uh, the impact and, and our attitude towards the gas prices. And as you say, for one in six drivers, they say their next car purchase can be fully electric or hybrid. Let, let's talk about Th that reality and whether or not that's actually feasible in other words you may want to do that but as you said john uh electric cars are not cheap uh, i know i know the, there's, there's the tesla and there's some high-end stuff but and chevy a lot of the other ones all have cars but they are not in, in ex who can afford it these days and, and and part b to that question is good luck finding one i mean you know i've been to a number oh, of friends it. of mine who are, are running car dealerships their lots are almost empty they can't get stuff because they can't get parts to make evs so, you know, you may want to and say, this is a great idea going forward. My next car will be an electric car or a hybrid. Uh, you may not be able to do that for the next little while. Yeah. And Bill, you're absolutely correct. We have 16% of all of the eligible drivers in this country who say that they, which is, you know, a fairly good chunk of the marketplace who say that they are very likely to buy this. And again, this was a week and a half before we had an increase at the pumps before we're having a dime increase on Thursday at the pumps again. So the demand for these vehicles is out there. The demand for used cars was already out there because there's a lot of new cars that we won't be able to get because of the chip shortage. We have a lot of people who, instead of coming off lease, will just keep the car uh, instead mm -hmm. of giving it back to the dealership. I mean, I've got a Buick that's been sitting in the driveway with almost no kilometers on it since this thing started. I mean, I should have racked up 60,000 kilometers on my car. Bill, I've got 22,000 kilometers on it and it comes off lease a year from now. So there's going to be a shortage of cars in the marketplace. But the reality is that that that's a decision that you have to make that's based on timing. And the reality is, as well, it's based on your pocketbook. And what, what's happening right now, as you and I know, is that we're starting to get squeezed. Interest rates are starting to rise. The cost of living is starting to increase. Wages will be held firm because it's going to cost a whole bunch of other people things uh, in businesses. There's, there, there is a cash crunch coming um, to all of us. I don't know where this is going to end up, but you know, much back to your parents and my parents who lived through that time frame. I don't know whether this is going to head us into a depression or not. The question is whether or not we are prepared to, you know, shoulder the pain and the pain for Ukraine right now. It seems that we're in favor of shouldering some of that pain for this. But boy, it's really going to test, test the courage of Canadians over the next 30 days as they see these costs rise exponentially. It is, because as you say, the, the, the momentum is building here to make things worse, not better. There, there is no light at the end of the tunnel just yet. I'm not trying to be a, a, a Debbie Downer here, uh, but, you know, like you say, the prices are going to go up on just about everything. And, and you know, this is this is early March. I mean, by May, June, you know, when this continues, uh, there are going to be a lot of upset people. And uh, just to put this in the context of what you were saying, this is an election year in Ontario, pro provincial election, which is going to be in June. 
and municipal elections, which are going to be in October. And I don't care if you're running for mayor or dog catcher or premier or whatever, uh, you go knocking on doors in this province in the next couple of months, you're going to get an earful uh, from people. I, and I found that when I was running, uh, when I ran and when I was on city council here, John, back in the day, uh, they don't care. You're an elected representative or somebody who wants to be, even if it's municipal, they're going to argue about gas prices and everything else because they want to vent. And they're, boy, these people want to vent. And there's going to be an awful lot of this in the next little while as this frustration builds. Well, two things. Number one is that, Again, you're right that there's going to be uh, a skyward pointing to Ottawa where politicians say, look, I'd wish I could do something, but I can't do it unless those people change it. And the municipal affairs people are going to say the same thing. And they actually have a lot of uh, of traction where people are, will be at the door and will be complaining about property taxes and things closer to the ground. So the, underlying yeah. all of this, Bill, as you and I have talked about, there is a surly nature to Canadians out there and that there's a bit of a regime change in the air every time a politician goes into an election. I will say this, though, that I made some expenditures in the last 48 hours that I didn't think I would be making. And that was I, I my two cents. I've just decided you know, regardless of what's happening in Europe, I was going to take my young guys on a trip to go back to my family roots, which are in Ireland, Scotland, England, and then on the battlefields of the Somme, where my grandfather uh, fought and where he was badly wounded and taken out, rejoined, if you can believe it, and went right to the end of the war in the First World War. But I went there many years ago and said, I'm standing in the very place where on that night at Delval Wood, if that shell had landed one foot one way or the other, I wouldn't be here today. And I wanted to take my boys to it. I thought about it. So I booked the trip the other night, got a great deal on WestJet. And last night I sat in front of the Leafs game with my computer and logged in every other thing that I could nail down for cars and for hotels in advance, because you know what's going to happen. All those surcharges, all those petroleum costs are going to go through the roof. I guess my message is, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Follow your dreams if you can. I got locked in. Everything was good. You got to lock in now. You got to start thinking that this is not a time to uh, to be faint of heart, that if you can lock down your costs into the future, then do it as much as you can so that you can live today and make sure that you've got that spread in your pocketbook. Because I think that's what it's down to for the next six months to come for sure. Uh, absolutely. Look, we just you know spent two years hiding in our basement. I'm using that metaphorically, of course, uh, because yep. of the pandemic. Uh, and I think we're looking up right now and seeing, you know what, it's costing a hell of a lot more to do stuff, but damn it, I got to do it because uh, I'm tired of this. So it, it's going to be interesting. And of course, uh, we always look forward to these conversations and uh, as you get the pulse of what's going on. John, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. You too. John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to dovetail off the conversation we just had with John Wright uh, from uh, Maru Public Opinion uh, with a, a poll they did with, you know, Canadians' attitude towards the rising gas prices. And, and as John mentioned, uh, they actually did this poll about 10 days ago before they really started to go through the roof. Uh, and we know they're going to continue to rise. Uh, and I get comments from this all the time. I get emails. I get you know, tweets from people. Of, you know, that damn government, it's the, it's the carbon tax. That's what's driving things up. Well, I, I get this. Nobody wants to pay more. Nobody even likes to pay taxes. We get that. But they're, they're a necessary part of our democracy. We get that, too, I hope. Some of us do, anyway. But uh, to let's, let's get a, a better read on exactly why the prices of gas is rising, uh, where that money is going, and uh, who may be responsible for this. And uh, there's a, a practical piece that I think kind of lays this all out for us. And it was uh, written by Randy Robinson. Randy is the Ontario Director for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And uh, the piece is called, It's Not the Carbon Tax That's Driving Up Gas Prices. Randy Robinson joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Randy, so good of you to join us. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, and thank you for having me. Well, you've laid the the, the, the cards out here, and you've looked at the numbers. Uh, you know, I, I, I everybody's got an opinion. I get all that stuff, but you know, an educated opinion I think is always helpful in situations like this. Uh, before we start, you know, uh, blaming people, uh, taxes are always going to be a problem on gasoline. They've always been a problem on gasoline. But as, as you mentioned in the piece, even if the federal government were to say, okay, we're not going to go through with the uh, carbon price increase, and by, by the way, they are going to. So, I mean, I'm just talking the hypothetical here. It wouldn't right. make a whole lot of difference to the price here, would it? Well, you know, people don't realize what a, a pro 
portion of uh, the price of gas that taxes are. And they certainly have had nothing to do whatsoever with the increase in prices that we've seen of late. You know, last Friday, I bought gas for $1.75. And I think by Monday, it was $1.85. And I don't know what it is now. But it's certainly going up fast. And that has nothing to do with taxes. You know, in Ontario, the provincial fuel tax has been 14.7 cents a litre since 1992. The federal excise tax has been 10 cents since 95. The federal carbon tax is 8.8 cents now and is going up to 11 on April 1st, but it hasn't changed since last April. And the HST hasn't changed since 2010. So those taxes are pretty much uh, static in terms of the price of gas. Uh, What is really driving the change, and I think people understand this, is uh, what's going on on the global oil uh, market. You know, um, there is nothing we buy that is more subject to wild price swings compared to gasoline. You know, we're used to inflation at 2% a year for most things, but in the past 20 years or so, we've had many times when the price of gas goes up by 20, 30, 40%. And sometimes it falls back down, but the general trajectory uh, is upward. You know, if we look at the consumer price index since 2002, 20 years ago, uh, on all items, it's up 47%, but on gasoline, it's up 113%. And that only goes to January. So we've seen further increases uh, since then, of course, very dramatic increases. So, you know, I... (laughs) I like to say when you buy a car, you're kind of buying a ticket on a roller coaster and the roller coaster goes up and down a lot, but it's also uh, heading upwards steadily. And and I think uh, the high gas prices that we're seeing because of what's happening in Ukraine uh, right now and uh, the way the crude oil markets are acting, they probably are going to be with us for quite a while. So uh, just on the issue of the role of taxes in this, you know, I know some people are saying, well, we've got to cut the taxes to uh, to make gasoline more affordable. But when you do that, you're kind of barking up the wrong tree for the simple reason that the taxes are not what's what's causing the price rise. Uh, but there's so much misinformation out there that drives this. I had a guy emailed me the other day, was all upset about it. And again, it was about the carbon tax and said, you know, he's raising it another 11 cents. I said, no, he's not. He's raising it to 11 cents. It's already at eight and a half and it's going to be up there. So you know, don't, you know, it, it, but that's out there and somebody retweets that or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden that becomes the narrative. And, you know, this is why your piece, I think, is so important right now, Randy, because it lays out exactly where the money is going and, and who's asking for it. And uh, let's face it, I think at any given time, an awful lot of politicians that say, yeah, I want to do something about gasoline prices, unless they want to lower the percentage, uh, there's not a whole lot they can do about this. Uh, you know, Doug Ford can't control the world price of oil. That's all there is to it. And uh, so we're stuck with what we've got here. Well, in, <laughs> we are to a large measure, but there are things that we can do. I mean. Oh, yeah, um, but not I, I'm individually. You're absolutely right. Individually, there are things that we can do. But as a society, there are things that we can do um, as well. I mean, the real underlying problem here is not that gas prices are volatile. It's that we're we're hooked on fossil fuels right now, and the the real way to to deal with this problem once and for all is to you know phase out the use of fossil fuels to the extent that we're possible we're able to do that. And the reason to do that is uh, twofold. Uh, first of all, there is a climate crisis. I mean, you've seen what happened in British Columbia this past November with the atmospheric river and the destruction of roads and bridges and all the damage that that caused. That's only going to be Um, uh, increasing as the years go by or even as the weeks go by. That's only going to get worse and we have to do something about the climate crisis. Uh, But the other thing about uh, weaning ourselves from fossil fuels is it's it's really expensive to be on fossil fuels and I really think it's only going to get more expensive as time goes by. You know, if you look around the world, uh, the prices that we're paying now in Ontario those are like normal prices in Europe. Uh, you know, I was looking last week on on the Ontario government website, which actually has a link to prices in other parts of the world. And even before this latest run up in prices, you know, the price of gas in Britain is $1.80 a litre. It's $1.90 in Germany. So those uh, kinds of high prices uh, have already arrived in lots of places in the world. And, and I suspect they're going to stay here. Uh, um, 
they might go down. They always have go down in the past, but the general trend is upward. And uh, if we want to avoid having gasoline costs eat up our household budgets and our, uh, you know, all of our budgets, um, then we should start thinking about how do we get off gasoline and how do we use fewer fossil fuels. That uh, difference in prices, though, that's been going on for quite some time. That's not a new phenomenon. Uh, traditionally, uh, in the UK and Europe, they 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 pay more for fuel, uh, fossil fuels, than we have. Uh, and you know, you talk to anybody if you've been over there on holidays, you've got relatives over there. Uh, they're shocked. I mean, when we were paying like eighty nine, ninety cents for a liter of gasoline, and they were paying two and a quarter, uh, they say, "What's going on here?" So we, we've been we've been living in a, a bit of a, a fantasy land here for the last little while. And I guess we're getting hit in the face with reality now, aren't we? I think so. And now, one of the things that goes on in Europe is um, that uh, they do tax fuel differently. I mean, a perfect example is Norway, where gas prices are very high, notwithstanding the fact that Norway is a major oil producer. And uh, they are really uh, using that as a means to push toward electrification of, uh, of cars. And, uh, you know, you talk about the things that we can do as a society. Um, some of them are not short term, like you wouldn't be able to do it tomorrow. But uh, electrification of, of uh, transportation is definitely a direction that we need to be heading. And that's there's a lot governments can do to, uh, to make that happen and incentivize the production of electric cars um, and uh, the purchase of electric cars. Um, we're also going to have to think about uh, where we live and uh, talk about changing zoning so that people can live closer to their work. Probably increasing density is going to be fundamentally important to using less gas so people don't have to travel such long distances. Um, and we're going to have to spend more on public transit. Now, uh, none of those things happens overnight, but uh, you know we've had ample warning for at least the last 20 years when gas prices really started to get volatile and really started to rise over the long term. You know we've had ample warning that this was coming, and uh, you know maybe this time we'll listen because it really seems that these gas prices for Ontarians and for Canadians have uh, have really been a wake up call that um, that what what we thought were high prices before were prices that we'd be happy to get now. And and as for those that are holding out hope to say, well, you know, drop the, the, the tax and that's going to make things better. As, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the numbers don't lie here. 72% of the increase in gas prices since March has been caused by the soaring price for crude oil. It's got nothing to do with taxes. Uh, okay, and, so and besides, and the other economic reality, of course, as, as you mentioned in the piece, uh, governments are strapped for cash right now because of pandemic. They've been putting out millions and millions of dollars in support programs, and as they should have. I mean, I, I, I hope majority of people are on side and understand how important that was. But they're all in deficit situations, and when the price of gasoline goes up, their take on it goes up because that's all based on percentage. I mean, they make more money in taxes uh, when gas is $2 a liter as opposed to a buck a liter. Uh, so they're not going to cry, you know, and, and say, "Okay, we're going to cut a break." They need the cash just as well, and so well, I mean, they may say we want to do something about it, but they never do because of that reason. Yeah. Now, the part of the gas price that goes that where the taxes go up with the overall price is the HST. The other yeah. parts are static, right? They're cents yeah. per liter. But um, you know. One of the things about tax cuts, which we don't hear some of our leaders talk about, is where are you going to get the money? And, um, you know, if you if you cut taxes on gasoline, uh, that means one of three things. It could mean um, you're going to raise other taxes to compensate for the loss of that revenue, uh, which uh, with our current Ontario government, it, it seems highly unlikely that that's going to happen. Um, the other option or another option is uh, you're going to borrow the money to subsidize gasoline prices, which um, means that essentially Ontarians are borrowing from themselves, uh, which is a kind of a peculiar approach. Uh, and then the third option is that you're gonna say, well, you know, we have to subsidize gasoline prices, so we're going to cut public services. And, um, you know, uh, I was writing this week in, in the Hamilton Spectator about how much uh, money, a billion dollars is that the current government is taking off of uh, license plate sticker fees? And the answer is 
that's 12,000 new nurses that you could hire with that kind of money. So we, if we're concerned about healthcare, we're concerned about how good schools are, if we're concerned about keeping the roads in good shape, you know, uh, there are some things that we pay for with our taxes and, and uh, you know, we're not a high spending province in Ontario. We spend $2,000 per person per year, less than the average of the other Canadian provinces. We're the lowest spending province. We really don't have a lot of room to cut taxes. And so it's a little bit disconcerting when you hear, you know, politicians say, I'm going to cut taxes, but they, they never mention where the money's going to come from. Well, and the other side of that it has always been, and you know, we've tried to point that out time and time again in this program, uh, you know, whether it's a prime minister or a premier, whomever says we're going to cut taxes, that means they're going to cut services. You don't know which ones uh, and, you know, until they do their budget or you, or you need that service and find out it's not there anymore or it's been reduced, and that can be problematic. The other element to this, too, and it kind of ties in with one of your earlier statements, if they were to cut taxes, for instance, uh, on, on gas tax, and as you mentioned, it would more likely be that that's that's less revenue for the government, but municipalities rely on gas tax revenue from from the province and the feds for public transit. Not solely, but I mean it's a big part of their of their spending. If that run, number goes down, the money to municipalities goes down, and that's counterproductive to what you were just saying about trying to improve public transit systems. You, you can't do both uh, with less money. Yeah, and I'm not saying that the uh, the various taxes on gasoline are enough to fund the entire public sector in Ontario or Hamilton or London or or Canada for that matter. But they're an important part of that. You know, yep. former Premier Bill Davis used to say the key to taxation is to have enough small taxes that people aren't particularly bothered by any one. And I think uh, that uh, gasoline taxes such as they are, which are not particularly high, uh, do play a part in, in keeping society running, you know, and keeping the roads going and keeping schools and hospitals going. And, um, you know, there is, as I've mentioned earlier, there's this other question of what are we going to do about the climate emergency? Because it's not going away. Um, you know, the climate crisis is a little bit like COVID, which is that it doesn't care what we think about it. Um, it is uh, it is continuing as getting worse, regardless of what words come out of our various mouths. The only thing that's going to affect that is our actions, right? And as to those actions, uh, the guest we had just before you joined us, Randy, of course, was John Wright from Maru, as I mentioned, uh, just as uh, you and I started our conversation. Mm -hmm. And their polling indicates that more and more Canadians are starting to say, you know what, maybe this electric vehicle thing is, is what we need to do here, uh, which is good. I mean, it's, uh, it's not going to change overnight. Nothing does. Uh, but it's it's starting, I think, to signal a change in mindset here that maybe that's not such a bad idea after all. And of course, that presents its own set of problems right now because you know there aren't a whole lot of EVs being produced just yet. Uh, but the government at least seems to be on side. I guess the Premier Ford has had a, a conversion on the road to Damascus here. And you know, for a guy four years ago that said they were stupid, we're taking the charging stations out, and he seems to be all in on it right now. And that's a good thing. But it's going to take time to catch up, isn't it? Yeah, it is for sure. And, uh, you know, if we're if we're making progress two, three years from now, I think that would be pretty rapid progress. I also saw the prime minister just signed a, a deal with uh, the Quebec government uh, that is about manufacturing batteries. Uh, so, you know, the, the the writing is in the wall on the wall that we're going to get electrified. Uh, the good thing about it is if you think back 100 years ago to where we were trying to create a network of uh, gasoline stations across North America, um, that was a very difficult thing to do. But the fact is, um, you know, our whole province, our whole country is electrified right now. So installing those charging stations and building that infrastructure is nowhere near as difficult as it would be if we were trying to create a new system from scratch. So, you know, we're, we're poised to make progress, but we have to kind of grab the opportunity that's in front of us, otherwise, we're going to keep on driving. We're going to uh, keep on driving, you know, internal combustion engine cars. And unfortunately, uh, Canada has the um, biggest engines and the worst gas efficiency and the highest uh, greenhouse gas emissions from our vehicles of any country in the world. You know, if we keep on on that path, uh, we're contributing to the crisis. We're not solving it. And I think uh, what we need to be focused on is solving it. You know, um, it's, it's so interesting with what's going on in Ukraine. A lot of people are making comments about 
you know, how a war in Europe works and how a world war works, I guess, as well. And one of the things about that kind of uh, big challenge is that it takes a while to get your response off the ground, but you have to work on it. You have to start right now doing something in order to get where you want to be in two or three years. Otherwise, you're going to be right back in the same place where you started from. Absolutely. Uh, Randy, thanks so much for this. I just, I'm glad you had some time to talk about this and put this thing in, in perspective and understand where it's coming from. That's, you know, there's a responsibility, I think, on all our parts. And I know somebody was just mentioning, but not fair to talk about the European com comparison. It, it actually is. And the reason they haven't been jumping up and down about the fact that they pay more uh, is because they got it. I mean, as you say, because of the high density of a lot of European cities, they don't even own cars in some of the downtown areas. And if they have to go from you know, one place to another, if it's a long distance, oftentimes they use public transit, they use trains. Uh, we don't, we get in our cars and we drive from Hamilton to Ottawa or from London to, to wherever. And, and it's costing us and it's going to cost us a lot more if we're going to continue to be like that. Well, this is the problem exactly. But uh, thanks for uh, having me on the show. It's always great talking to you, Bill. Thanks so much, Randy. Take care. Randy Robinson, okay. Ontario Director for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.